Uh, good evening, everybody. Let's take our Bibles. Go to Hebrews 11. Let me uh, try to meet you there quickly. And uh, we're going to jump right in. And uh, very thankful for the opportunity again to be with you tonight. I don't try to be long, just so you know. Uh, it just comes naturally. Amen. Uh, I could tell you that I was going to preach short tonight. Amen. But then you'd probably get really upset at me. Amen. But uh, I want to try to be a blessing to you tonight. Uh, we have a lot of material that we could bring to you. You're going to see uh, slides moving very quickly tonight, and you'll see us skip over some. Uh, just uh, pay no attention to the little man behind the curtain. Amen. When those go by, they just uh, were not important enough uh, to uh, include tonight just because of the, the time uh, crunch that we're in tonight to try to get things across to you. Um, there'll be a transition, and uh, I will not uh, deal with the, the subsection that's in between these. I'm really crunching two presentations together tonight, so this is really going to get ugly. Amen? Uh, but uh, anyway, I'll try not to keep you forever. Um, anyway, I'm not going to ask, how many really felt like it's been long this week? Amen? Uh, i probably set myself up. Amen? Usually when I get done, people say, I can't believe it was that long or something like that. Amen? And uh, so I hope that's the case this week. I love Baptist history. I'm very interested in it, so I can just listen to it forever. And uh, if you don't, you're not right with God yet. Amen. But uh, <clears throat> so we're not going to go short for you. Amen. I'm sorry. Uh, anyway, uh, Hebrews chapter 11, we'll start in verse number 32. Uh, we are obviously in the faith or the grace chapter. Amen. If you want to call it the hall of faith, uh, you can emphasize man. If you want to call it the hall of grace, you can emphasize God. Amen. All the faith we have is a gift of God. Amen. And very thankful for uh, the uh, privilege of being able to have faith. In this passage of Scripture, you'll find that uh, a lot of things, the rabbits I love to run in Hebrews chapter 11. First of all, you see people in different dispensations, and they all please God by faith, amen. So the whole idea of work saving and stuff, uh, you can just one chapter of Scripture dispels that uh, idea. But in this passage of Scripture, we see God, uh, and, and by the way, if God's not concerned with history, and this is a waste of time, then why is He pointing us back to people uh, whom we're to draw strength from and be encouraged by their faith journey. Amen. The uh, Lord obviously is using the history of His people and how He worked in their lives uh, to encourage us and challenge us today uh, through this. Of course, we understand the book of Acts is a history book. That's a running uh, story and uh, running uh, really a lesson on the early churches. And uh, the whole Bible itself is a history book. Amen. It's His story. And so the Lord's very interested in history. But in this passage, he deals with people of faith. And uh, what we're going to do here is we're going to pick this up. And you'll notice the first section we read tonight. We'll just read a, a short uh, portion here for sake of time. You'll see a bunch of people that are mentioned. And you'll find that very positive, uh, wonderful things happened in their lives because they exercised faith. And God is honoring them and uh, keep recording them in this record for that reason. So notice, for example, verse number 32. What shall I more say, for the time would fail me to tell of Gideon, and of Barak, and of Samson, and of Jephthah, of David also, and Samuel, and of the prophets, who through faith, he says, here's what their faith did. Now check this out, and you see if you come to the same conclusion as me, a lot of these things seem very positive, very very good outcomes, amen, of having faith. For example, and of course God's trying to tell us you the value of faith. You have faith, and wonderful things can happen. He says, for example, they subdued kingdoms through faith. They wrought righteousness, positive, positive, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions. That's a good thing, amen. Uh, quenched the violence of fire, escaped the edge of the sword out of weakness, were made strong through faith. They waxed valiant in fight, 
turned to flight the armies of the aliens, and through faith, women received their dead, raised to life again. Now, as we look at this text of Scripture, we're at a hinge or a pivot in the text here, and we have to be real careful not to get this idea that just because God says, hey, they had faith, and look at the great things that happened, therefore great things can happen through faith, we don't want to get this idea that just because you follow God that positive things are always going to happen. Amen? I was recently preaching again on that wonderful doctrine that I love to study and look into, the suffering of obedience. When Christ sends you straight into a storm, and He, he has designed the storm, but yet He's there with you. And we find that uh, not only, my friend, will people follow God here with faith and have great things happen, but now as we look at the rest of the text, we find that people had faith and some what we would call terrible things begin, atrocious, horrible things begin to happen. But we don't want to get this idea, well, maybe that first crowd had more faith, and therefore positive things happen. That's charismania doctrine, amen? That's Pentecostalism. We don't believe that. We don't believe in the prosperity, uh, name it and claim it crowd, amen, and all their doctrine. Uh, but, and that's why I would submit to you to don't, don't get this idea, well, the crowd we're about to read about bad things happened because they just didn't have enough faith. In fact, it could have very well been quite the opposite. Maybe it was that God entrusted the second crowd knowing they'd be faithful to Him no matter how grave the danger or no matter how massive the test may have been. And, but, but I want to read about this crowd and I want you to notice that these others, they had faith as well. But the Bible said here, uh, others were tortured through faith. They were tortured, see? Through faith, not accepting deliverance that they might obtain a better resurrection. Through faith, others had trial of cruel mockings and scourgings. Moreover, of bonds and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn asunder. That means they were cut in pieces while yet alive. They were tempted, were slain with the sword. They wandered about in sheepskins and goatskins being destitute. That means having less than nothing, scavenging for food, living off the land, running for your life, afflicted, tormented, through faith, mind you, the Bible said of whom the world was not worthy. They wandered, notice this, in deserts and in mountains and in dens and caves of the earth. Now, we understand contextually that this passage of Scripture is primarily dealing with the Old Testament servants of God. I would start with the prophets, I would go to the priests, I would move down to the scribes, and then just even godly kings and judges and uh, the Bible tells us here uh, of those in the Old Testament that had faith in God, and uh, this last portion tells us that because of their faith in following Jesus, they were tortured and they suffered and they had some horrible things happen to them. However, I believe now knowing in hindsight what we know, having been so far into the church age, or, the, or the, you know, this dispensation of the, uh, the, the uh, Gentiles as it were, as we look back, we see the same exact thing carried on right into the New Testament. So there is an allusion to those also for the past 2,000 years who have continued, just like the saints of old, to suffer for Jesus Christ because they had faith and followed God. We don't want to rehash everything. We started with John. I mean, right there it is. New Testament, amen, that pivotal figure, and the persecution just continues. The torture and the suffering and all of those things. And they have taken place all over the world, all the way down to this very day. These atrocities are still going on against Christians in many nations upon this planet. But I want to primarily focus tonight on this uh, phrase right here. Uh, in verse number 38, the Bible said they wandered in deserts. Check this out and in mountains, and then this, and in dens and caves 
of the earth. I want to talk to you about a group tonight that wandered about in mountains and dens and caves of the earth and literally preserved for us and handed to us in its purity the faith once delivered to the saints. I want to talk to you tonight about the Waldenses. Let's pray together tonight. Father, I thank you for your grace and your good mercy to us, Lord. Uh, Father, we don't deserve any of it. I thank you, Lord, just for allowing us to be a part of the family of God. Thank you, Lord, for good uh, scriptural New Testament churches that we can be a part of and serve you through. Thank you, Father, for the blood. Thank you, Lord, for what you did on Calvary. We just praise your holy name tonight. For all things come from your hand, Father. We want to recognize that publicly. Thank you, uh, God, for just being a good God to us. I pray tonight, Lord, as we dive into this, and we begin to examine, uh, to consider the days of old, and as we begin to look back at these that have served you and loved you, God, I pray that you would anoint the message tonight. I pray to bind all devils and distractions away from this place, and uh, may uh, the truth go forth, and may hearts be stirred and changed and Lord, I pray for several things. I pray, first of all, saints of God will be challenged tonight uh, in reference to our uh, sacrifice for you, our willingness to suffer for you, our dedication, our love for you and for your word. And then, Father, I pray for those that may be lost, that they'd be saved by the good grace of God tonight. Lord, I pray again, you'd bind all devils, all distractions, anything that would hinder away from here. Build a wall of fire around us for the next little while. And God, I pray, get the glory from everything that's said and done tonight. In Jesus' name. Amen. I'm going to have you put your Bible down for a bit, and uh, we will be looking at some things doctrinally here in just a bit, but I want to uh, talk to you tonight about the Waldenses. If we could have the lights, I'd appreciate that. You've been so patient, so kind this week. Uh, I'm going to have to speak fast tonight, probably even faster. The Waldenses. Uh, let me just jump in, if I may. Uh, by the way, I wrote that book, and the reason I wrote that book was because I felt that uh, our generation, largely as I traveled and talked to people, were pretty much completely ignorant as to even how to pronounce Waldenses or the Vaudois of the Alps of Piedmont. And uh, they knew very, very little, if anything at all, about who these wonderful people were. And uh, if I would be doing a Bible conference and we'd be going through uh, the prophets, we would maybe talk and divide them into major and minor prophets. And as I do Baptist Heritage conferences, I'll do an ancient conference or an American conference or teach it on the Bible college level or whatever. When we go through them, we try to delineate different groups of Baptists and we try to show them uh, that there was a manifestation of Christ's churches at all times and in all places, uh, all over the world, all the way down to the church age. And we try to show the different groups. And there are a lot of those groups. We talked a little bit last night about the Donatists. We could move on, talk about the Paulicians. Uh, we had the privilege of uh, going around uh, uh, Notre Dame after it had been burned down. Amen. Got to see it burned to the ground from all sides. That was a blessing. Amen. And uh, some of you didn't understand that, but you understand that all those ungodly cathedrals were built because they pillaged southern France in the 9th, 10th, 11th centuries and almost wiped out the population of southern France. And those monies were used to build those ungodly monstrosities all over Europe. And uh, by the way, they persecuted and slaughtered Baptists right in front of Notre Dame. And uh, so, yeah, we were very uh, thankful to be able to do that. But, uh, so, but, but nonetheless, I want to try to uh, introduce you to uh, the Waldenses here. Let me just jump in, if I may. Uh, as, as I was mentioning, as we go through these different groups, and you can see several of them here, uh, there would be some smaller groups that we would not mention necessarily on this chart that I put together some time ago. But uh, I would say if you're going to take one group and you say, which one was the most important? I would say it's the group that I'm talking to you about tonight. 
For example, uh, the Waldenses held purity of doctrine to a large degree, what we call orthodoxy, and they held that all the way down to the Reformation and in some smaller groups even beyond the Reformation. So we're talking about the one group that we know of that for 15 centuries held the apostolic doctrine and preserved it in its purity all the way down through the centuries. So, for example, if the Paterines never existed, by the way, a lot of these are groups that evaporated into other groups and they were just migrated Waldenses and such, a big story behind each one of them, but suppose there are nine or ten of these groups and you just took them off the board as though there were never churches in those locations that held to the doctrines of Christ, you would still be able to see the perpetuity, preservation, and empowerment of Jesus as my church just in this one group, the Waldenses, for they alone, uh, no other group can this be said of, had orthodoxy in their doctrine for 15 solid centuries all the way down through the church age. So they lap over all of these other groups that may rise up and carry the baton for a while and maybe they would die out or maybe they'd be slaughtered or maybe they would pass on their doctrine to someone else. So this is a very important group. This is a major of the majors. Amen? If you think about major and minor prophets, this is the most important Baptist group that you and I may study. Now, Baptist church history, you'll notice again, the Waldenses span a full 15 centuries uh, in orthodoxy, and so that's something, again, that can't be said of any of these other groups. Now, where were they? Well, you'll notice with the points of the arrows, and we'll, we'll try to zoom in on this in just a bit, but they are found to be all over Europe, and there's a reason for that. They were extremely evangelistic during a time frame when it was very difficult to be evangelistic. We'll develop that quite a bit. Bear with me if I may. But, but largely they were concentrated uh, in the Alps of northern, northwestern Italy, over there in that Piedmont region, as they call it, just south of the Swiss Alps there in France, and also in extreme southeastern, or Switzerland rather, uh, and also in extreme southeastern France. This is where they were concentrated, and this is where they were preserved for all of those centuries. Let me jump in. Now, uh, the enemies of the Baptists fight against our antiquity. Now, I don't want to take a whole lot of time to develop this, but some of the strongest voices against the early date for the Vaudois are the fundamentalists that promote modern versions. And I hate to bring Bob Jones into this, but we did talk about that place a little bit tonight. And uh, there are some people that used to hold to an antiquity of the Waldenses. But the truth is, the Italic Bible, or Italibiblia, dates back to about 120 A.D., was a Waldensian text. And the problem is, they don't want to admit its antiquity. And so if the Waldenses are that old, then it just could follow that their texts are that old. And so those that used to have no problem with it, now that they've moved to an eclectic text, a Westcott-Hort-type text, now they attack the antiquity of the Waldenses. And I have studied the antiquity of the Waldenses for many, many years. And if there's anything upon this planet I'm convinced of, that is that they are ancient and they originate with the doctrine and the disciples of Jesus Christ. Uh, there's much I could say here. Uh, I won't take the time to do this, but in Acts chapter number 2, you remember that on the day of Pentecost, there were devout Jews there from every nation. How many remember there in the book of Acts, it talks about Rome. Now, what I want to just try to prove to you very briefly, and I really probably shouldn't even be giving you this whole section, but I want you to understand that Italy, if any place on the planet was flooded with, mod with, with proper Christianity, biblical Christianity, very early in the first century. For example, we see here as early as... Pentecost that people may have been traveling back there right away and 
and spreading the gospel there in Rome. Uh, and so we have Christianity again early going there. Now the book of Romans itself is a letter from the Apostle Paul to the Christians in Rome. A reading of the final chapter of this book, chapter 16, indicates that by A.D. 57, the date it was most likely delivered, Italy was already flourishing with many noted and godly Christians. Several are listed in this chapter. So this is evidence number two, that Christianity was flourishing in Italy way back in the first century when it wasn't flourishing in many other places. I call chapter 16 the hug and neck chapter. Amen. Greet this one and tell this one hello and this one help this and thank this one. And I mean, so there's a lot of good notable Christians that obviously were helpers uh, to the apostles there in the first century. And this doesn't prove that uh, it migrated up to the northern regions of Italy, but it certainly does show us that there was a foundation of widespread biblical Christianity and the gospels moving very swiftly during the early centuries. Now, in addition, Onesiphorus was obviously a minister to missionaries and an aide to the work of the apostle Paul was at Rome for a substantial period of time. And again, since the gospel is traveling quickly, uh, it could be intelligently argued around the same time that scriptural assemblies were forming in the central part of Italy and also that the gospel was moving up into northern Italy. Now, I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this. Let me just throw this one out at you. I could get into the authorship uh, of the book of Hebrews tonight, and I know that's a, a big issue and a big big contention with some guys, but uh, the truth is, uh, I don't think that the Apostle Paul possibly could have written the book of Hebrews, for Paul himself said that he had a token, because there were false letters circulating, that every letter that he wrote, so they, they would know it was authenticated by Paul, he would sign it on the top, Paul. You look at Paul's epistles, it's Paul, 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 you get to Hebrews, God who at Sunday times and in diverse manners. In addition to that, Paul said he was never taught by men, that he received everything by the revelation of Jesus Christ. God gave Paul all of his revelation directly. The writer of Hebrews said it was confirmed unto us by them differentiating himself from them. And he says, them that heard him, saying that he never heard uh, Jesus Christ personally. So again, uh, I mean, do, using proper rules of interpretation... The reason I say that is because I believe not only was uh, uh, we, do we find books being written by the Apostle Paul, but there was quite honestly, maybe Hebrews also was written from Italy by even another man, which goes to the heart of the idea that maybe there were numerous books of the Bible that were being written then, uh, there in Rome. And so just something to consider. I'm not going to run that rabbit. People get all testy about that. Amen. That's just my educated opinion. I could explain to you further why I believe that. But uh, if you go over here to Valdez, North Carolina, most of you probably know where that is, and it's just west of Hickory. Uh, there's a, a little museum there, and I'll show you some things from Valdez, and I'll show you some things uh, from the Cochin Alps in Italy here in a bit. But they've always believed that they uh, were ancient, and that they had a succession from the apostles, or, or the, uh, the, those who were from the apostles. And so you notice one of the plaques over there in the Waldensian Museum. So how to get there? Well, understand, way back in the middle 1800s, there was a group of full-blood Waldensian people that decided to migrate from the Cochin Alps all the way over into uh, the Piedmont region, strange as it may be, or the western edge of the Piedmont region uh, here in North Carolina. They bought large tracts of land and, and they begin to build homes and there's been a Waldensian settlement there ever since. Now, these people love their history. I think we'll be able to prove that to you very uh, simply here in a little bit. I mean, to pay the architects to, to bring OSHA in, I mean, to design, build a mountain, uh, which they did over there, uh, to build a cave church and to put all those structures up and then to have people volunteer to tend to them. I was just talking to a gal over there uh, yesterday or today it was. There's a guy named Timothy Tron. He wrote uh, a, a historical fiction series on the Waldenses. His ancestors are from 
the Waldensian uh, valleys. We had almost gone as far as where he lived, amen. They live a little bit north of where the Waldensians proper there uh, were, but uh, nonetheless, he's one of the men that made sure that people understood that the Waldensians were ancient. Well, notice what they say in the museum. Apostles of Christ plant seeds of Christianity in the Waldensian valleys as they travel across the Cochin Alps into Gaul, France, and other parts of Europe. Now, this is A.D. 58 to 59, okay? Many sources prove their antiquity. They are endless. Let me give you a few. Renario Sacconi, he was a former Waldensian preacher who turned away from God. And you say, why would he do that? Well, under great persecution, you and I do not know what we would do. So it's real easy for us to sit here and say, how can you trust Sacconi? He was a Waldensian preacher, and then he left that. Well, if they came in and they begin to rape your children and cut your family members' heads off and burn your preachers, you don't know and I don't know what we would do. All we know is that Sacconi was of the Waldensian uh, brand, and then he turned away under great persecution. And when you turn away, by the way, then they make sure of your loyalty. You're the one that's going to have to give them the names and the places where all of the dissenters live. You may have to be the one to carry the torch to go light their homes on fire at night, and etc. Well, Sacconi was one of those men. And he said, with no ulterior motive that we may be able to find, he said, some say that the Waldensian schism dates back to the time of Sylvester, 325, others to the time of the apostles. Let me go further. David of Augsburg, a scholar by any measurements, he said he, they call themselves successors of the apostles, the Waldenses, and they say that they're in possession of the apostolic authority and of the keys to bind and to unbind. Amen? Now, those words bother fundamentalists. They don't bother real Baptists. Amen? Because we believe that authority was bestowed upon one institution and that that institution has existed in perpetuity, preserved by God. By the way, it always amazes me. You go to a camp meeting, you go to a Bible conference, and you wave your King James and say, God preserved the book, and they'll shout the house down. Amen? And you say, man, God preserved Israel. He's not done, and they'll shout the house down. And you say, God preserved the church, and they'll Cut their eyes at you, amen. Look at the floor. Jesus Christ, what good would it be for Him to give us a manual for the church and, and, and promise His perpetuity and preservation and perfection all the way down to this day and then let the institution that uses that book somehow fall by the wayside, amen? So you're looking at a man that believes in the preservation and perpetuity of scriptural churches. Augsburg said that. The great church historian Neander said the Waldenses of this period asserted the high antiquity of their sect. He then explains they believe they existed well before Constantine and the existence of the Roman Catholic institution. Alexis Mustan, a historian, doctor in theology, French Waldensian pastor, poet, he said the Vaudois of the Alps are, in my opinion, primitive Christians or descendants and representatives of the primitive church preserved in these valleys from the corruption successively introduced by the church of Rome into the religion of the gospel it is not they who have separated from Catholicism but Catholicism which has separated from them by changing the primitive religion now you're from Pennsylvania preacher I remember knocking doors in Pennsylvania about every other person at least is a Catholic up there and more you get up towards Wilkes-Barre and up towards the New York border 
border, it's thick with Catholics. And I cannot tell you how many times I've had somebody say, why would we want to come to your church? Don't you know that all churches come out of the one true Holy Mother Catholic Church? And that's what they've been taught. They have no arguments beyond that. That's just the statement that they've heard. And the truth is, not only did we not come out of Rome, but the fact is they came out of us. Amen? In other words, those apostatizing churches decided to join up with Constantine while the rest maintained purity and continued down through the church age. Now, this guy Mustan, why would he be looked to at all? Well, he probably wrote the quintessential greatest history of the Waldenses ever. It's about 1,200 pages. The hardcover set, which I own, is about $165 last time I checked. It's a wonderful history, worth reading. I think for about $110, if you want to own, want to own the greatest thing on the Waldenses ever written, you can get the paperback for about $110. But uh, this guy, uh, just wonderfully uh, full of information and documentation, he poured over about 20,000 pages of documentation to write his massive masterpiece is what it was. It was his life's masterpiece. And uh, I often look at that and I think about, man, how could this guy not just you know, be, be vomiting or, or have his gut-wrenching? All the martyology that he waded through and all the slaughters and all the suffering and all the struggling. And then you get to a place in his book where he actually breaks forth almost with a prophecy. And it's an amazing thing. You get into Mustan's book and he's going through and he's documenting all these things. And then all of a sudden it's like he's talking to the reader. And all of a sudden, I don't know if he just couldn't contain himself anymore. Uh, but for example, he'd say, you know, I gleaned a half a chapter of material from these 2,400 pages. That's the amount of material this guy invested into this masterpiece, but he breaks into this kind of prophecy and he says, oh Rome, hypocrite that thou art. He says, uh, 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 worried about the, the fact that thou canst not now in thy decrepitude glut thyself with human flesh as in time past. What need have we into entering into the list of controversy with thee? Thine own act shall be thy burial dress. He goes on to this massive rant against Roman Catholicism and then he goes right back into the history. But uh, So he's very passionate. This this is definitely uh, their books worth reading if you're really interested in knowing more. Uh, you know, this is another plaque from over there in the museum, and I love this statement. It's such a classic. When asked how old their faith for generations, well, Densian parents have simply told their children, our faith is from time immemorial. This is a, just an idea of where I'm getting some of these plaques from over there in Valdez, and uh, there's a bunch of Baptists doing what they do best, amen? If you take a group, there's a nice little restaurant there, a little Italian place. They'll cater it for you, amen? And that's the best way to do it. You can spend several hours there, amen, gorge yourself, just have a good time, amen? And there's my preacher there in the back. He's a lot bit thinner right now, right now amen? Theodore Beza, the 16th century reformer, said in reference to their antiquity, As for the Waldenses, I may be permitted to call them the very seed of the primitive and purer Christian church. Like bees or not, again, this man was a very learned man. Uh, you know, we don't even understand what education is today. I think about men like John Gino, Hezekiah Smith. When they entered Princeton University, they had to back-translate Greek into Latin. They had to translate the English Bible into Greek. Are you listening to me? To enter to Princeton University. Uh, John Gano almost died because he overstudied, almost studied himself to death while he was at Princeton. I'm not promoting Princeton. It was a Presbyterian school. A lot of Baptists got a decent education there back in the day. But I'm simply saying these men have a scholarship on a level that is unmatched today. Sir Samuel Moreland, for example. Here's a guy. So Hampstead Bannister Parish Rector, English academic, mathematician, spy, inventor, diplomat, map had more hats in a hat factory amen check out what he said now here was a guy that cromwell commissioned and paid 
to go study the subject of whether the Waldenses were ancient or not. And Sir Samuel Moreland said, These valleys and mountains were strongly fortified by nature on account of their difficult passes and bulwarks of rocks and mountains. And they impress one as if the all-wise Creator, love this, had from the beginning designed that place as a cabinet. Emphasis mine from the beginning. Amen? A cabinet. Where to put some in an inestimable jewel or in which to preserve many thousands of souls who should not bow the knee to Baal? Uh, of course, Sir Samuel Moreland came to the conclusion they were ancient and they had been there from time immemorial. Amen? Jonathan Edwards, another scholar, he, he was one time again president of Princeton University, which was an amazing uh, position to hold. He said, one of the Popish writers speaking of the Waldenses says, the heresy of the Waldenses is the oldest heresy in the world. Now that heresy, we take that as a compliment, amen? That's a, that, that is a public profession that you have repented and believed the gospel and a commensurate deep water baptism, amen? That's the heresy that the Waldenses were pushing and, and that, that he didn't like very much. But he said, hey, it's the oldest belief in the world is that, that belief that they held. Now here's an awesome one. You've got to really put your thinking cap on and think this through with me for a minute. George Stanley Faber, an Anglican, not a Baptist, mind you. He said, consequently the claim of the Romish church being thus of plain necessity set aside. Now, what is he saying? He's saying any able, reputable uh, scholar of any proper rank would know in any proper learning that the, the claim of Rome to antiquity, he said, we've just got to lay that aside. We know that can't be the truth, okay? That's not what the record shows us whatsoever. Roman Catholicism doesn't even begin to come on the map until the 4th century, the beginning of the 4th century. He says, okay, so now we set that aside. Here's the problem now. Now we stand bound to produce some other visible church, whose claim may be more satisfactory as to antiquity. He says, lest otherwise the promises of Christ should seem to have failed in their accomplishment. Here's what he's saying. We've got to set the claim of Rome's antiquity aside, and that now, he said, we've got to find some other group whose claim may be more satisfactory. Otherwise, there is no church that started and is still continuing today. But here's his conclusion. The Anglican, mind you, who, you know, by the way, these guys would delegitimatize themselves. Maybe you heard of the Presbyterian Church way back in history. They decided to research the authority of Roman Catholicism. And when they researched the authority of Roman Catholicism, they came up with the idea that Roman Catholicism had no authority, and then they unbaptized all of themselves, amen, and realized they were in trouble, so they tabled it, amen. But uh, anyway, this is what happens, and I don't know why these guys don't leave it. You'll find this with a lot of these scholars. He said this, accordingly, after all that, the church which I would produce is that of the Valencies or the Valdez or Vaudois. From the apostolic age itself down to the present, that venerable church has been seated in the valleys of the Cochin Alps, where it has never ceased to profess one and the same unvarying theological system, thus faithfully reflecting the sincere, unadulterated gospel of primitive Christianity. Amen? Love that. Now, here's the area that we're largely discussing tonight. This is a picture of the uh, screen on, a, on an airplane, amen. This is actually an aerial view going over the Alps. There's right out the window, and this is in the month of June, flying over the Alps. And so, if you've been to Colorado, you've been to something similar, at least to the Alps. But they didn't live on those mountaintops, obviously, they lived down in those valleys. This is a picture I got to take while I was over there uh, in the Cochin Alps a few years ago. And I'll be honest with you. 
It was everything I thought it was going to be and a whole lot more. In fact, it's probably my favorite place on the planet just to wander through these endless mountains. When I say endless, it is absolutely mind-boggling once you get into the Alps. I used to wonder, how on earth could Rome just slaughter them all very quickly? How could they hide so easily? And then you get in there and it just keeps going higher and higher and deeper and higher. And there's this little holler and this little cutoff and it's just endless. It's like trying to find a needle in a haystack. And that's how God used this terrain to preserve their lives even under, listen, orders by popes who thought the earth was flat. I know that's come back today and all, but, but no, they really thought the earth was flat. And he said, chase the heretics to the very ends of the earth and exterminate every one of them. Well, God had a hiding place in these little nooks and crannies and caves where they were still going to be able uh, to exist. There's another picture I had the privilege of taking. And one of the blessings, you know, okay, it's a place of great persecution. Man, is it beautiful. As you walk higher and higher up into those Alps, there is a runoff from the deep snows up on top in the ice. And just every time you turn another corner, you hear another waterfall. And there's another one and another one. Another is just absolutely beautiful. I uh, had a wonderful time over there. There's just another picture. So this is the region in which they lived in. There over in the museum here in Valdez, they'll, they'll show you a portion of the, of the Cochin Alps. And what's neat about this is you push a little button over there, and those little white ones will light up there. So all the little brown ones are smaller populations and such. And then the bigger towns would be delineated by these, uh, these little bulbs that light up. And so I'm thankful they did this, amen, because for years this is what I feasted on. And then finally we raised the money, saved the money, and we're finally able to go do our dream and spent all that time over there in Europe and Africa and just had a wonderful time. But I would encourage you to go over there if you haven't been there at all. Their doctrine... I've been questioned on this, and I wrote into the book a lot about their doctrine, and you just mentioned their dancing. I thought that was interesting, amen? Because not only were they Baptists down to, down to the T on their doctrine, but their practice and a lot of their standards of separation and holiness, amen, which are Bible doctrines, amen, uh, in and of themselves, but they were very clear uh, that they were a separated holy people. But it's strikingly Baptist on all major points. Now, I don't want to take a whole lot of time on this, and the reason I say that is, first of all, we don't have the time, but you can find this on the Internet. If you go in and you Google uh, Waldensian Confession of Faith, 1120 A.D., uh, you will be able to find this. And by the way, you could lay this next to a Baptist Confession of Faith, and although because of the antiquity of it, they may not have said it the same way we would, or because of some of the terminology, may, may need to find in reference to what we believe today. Uh, other than that, it is a Baptist confession of faith, and you'd be able to join a Waldensian church. In fact, Wycliffe, whose parents were uh, Lillewood and Hezekiah Tyndale from southern Wales, a strict Baptist sect down there, he was also accepted to preach among the Waldenses. We'll find later that preachers would start their ministry as Waldensian pastors, and then they would migrate to England, and they would die as a Baptist pastor. And their doctrine was very similar, And uh, so, but nonetheless... You could just take a glance at this. Their canonical books are the same as our canonical books. They do talk about the Apocrypha for its historical value, saying that it is not inspired. And uh, then, uh, you know, Christ, number six, was born in the time appointed by God the Father. This is the same when time when all iniquity abounded, not for the cause of good works for all were sinners, but that He might show us grace and mercy as being faithful. Christ is our truth. Life, truth, peace, righteousness is also our pastor, advocate, sacrifice, and priest. Uh, check this out. Here's some stuff they don't like, uh, the Roman Catholic heresies. Check this out. We believe after life, there's only two places, the one for the 
the saved and the other for the damned, of which two places we call paradise and hell, absolutely denying that purgatory invented by Antichrist and forged contrary to the truth. Uh, we have always accounted as an unspeakable abomination before God all those inventions of men, namely the feasts and the vigils of saints and the water which they call holy, as likewise to abstain from flesh upon certain days and the like, but especially their masses. Amen? I could say amen to everything right there. We esteem for an abomination as anti-Christian all those humane inventions which are the trouble, uh, a trouble or prejudice, to the liberty of the Spirit. Oh, there it is again. Amen. That struggle for liberty of conscience. And these were the people who preached it, wrote it, taught it, and defended it all the way down through the ages. Uh, now, sacrament. Sacrament, this terminology, by the way, and I hate to burst your bubble, ordinances was usually, generally speaking, of the whole Bible or the commands of God. We, the ordinance being used by Baptists is kind of a newer thing. But uh, nonetheless, they were called sacraments. And the argument back then was whether you're a sacramentalist or whether you're a sacramentarian. So today the argument would be, do you keep sacraments or do you keep ordinances? Back then it was, uh, everything was called a sacrament and the ordinances referred to the Word of God. So we're understanding that, again, they're right on the money as to where we are. We acknowledge no other sacrament but baptism and the Lord's Supper. Honor the secular powers by subjection, ready obedience, paying, paying tributes. Okay. Now, the name itself comes from the Italian word Valdesi or the French word Vaudois, meaning valley. So the proper terminology is that they were the Vaudois of the Alps of Piedmont. This is a picture I took there in the little town of Angronia. This was the hotbed of persecution for many centuries there in the Cochin Alps. This is down in town, and you can follow this up the mountain, and it just continues on and it's, it's sites of great persecution. Now, I'm hoping that thing is going to work and that it's going to be loud enough. I'm going to try to make sure that my volume is all the way up here. I'm going to try to show you. Uh, we walked up in and we found some places. So the first place we found that I'd like to share with you tonight is uh, the School of the Barbas. How many here have been over to Valdez and toured that? Anyone at all that's been here? So over in Valdez, they have a School of the Barbas, okay? And you'll, you'll be able to see this. You'll say, man, that looks somewhat like it. And then I'll show you the one from over here in Valdez. But uh, this, by the way, the way they build their trails, they were to last for centuries. So you and I would take a bunch of big flat rocks and thick flat rocks, and we'd lay them down. But they don't. They turn them sideways and tuck them into the ground. And you'll find these trails. It's kind of like the stone walls in Connecticut, mile after mile in Massachusetts. You find these stone trails like this over in the Cochin Alps, and they just really add to everything. Thing over there. So we're walking up this trail and we're looking for the school of the barbers and we literally got lost. I, I will say I got lost. Amen. Got my whole family lost. Amen. Almost got our car stuck way, way up in the mountains. I think it was a goat path I was driving a rental car on. Don't tell the rental company. Amen. But uh, anyway, uh, so it just keeps going and going and going. And we're looking for this school of the barbers. And I'll tell you what that is in just a minute. Now, please disregard. I mean, we're hiking through the mountains. I'm looking pretty bad on some of these. You'll just have to get over it. Amen. I ran out of gas. How about 
So we finally made it to the school of the Barbas, amen? And uh, this is the place where they trained their preachers. And uh, I'll tell you a little bit about that. They, they didn't train like we train. Okay, we use books of doctrine, and uh, we use Robert Sargent's books, amen, and Brother Beller's book. And, uh, but no, they just used the Bible. And it was the, the purpose of these young preachers to train under the tutelage of a barba. Barba meant uncle. And so they were to train under these uncles, and they were to uh, really kind of mirror them and follow them and, uh, you know, kind of copy them for a year. And they would try to memorize as much of the Bible as they could. And then after the first year, when the weather began to get good, uh, they would go out and they would go across the countryside preaching the gospel two by two. And uh, oftentimes they'd come back if they weren't quite ready and they'd study another year. But some of them would go and they would spend their life starting churches after they left here, winning people to Christ. It was literally said of the Waldenses that they rebaptized Europe out of Catholicism. That's how evangelistic they were. If you think for a moment, here's a group that had approximately 25 million martyrs in their group alone. And uh, that is the largest amount of martyrs for any group that we could ever find anywhere historically. And they didn't just continue to exist but they actually flourished and they grew and they spread tentacles into nations all over Europe and then eventually their doctrine would come in under the name of Anabaptists in many cases would come into England and then that doctrine of course would come across to America but this is the place they would study again I, I, I this is just the way these worked out sorry for the ugly face That sign says that they went out long before the Reformation spreading the gospel. No big libraries, just the Bible. The Waldenses are known as a people whose children, many times by the age of adulthood, would have the entire New Testament memorized, and some of them the entire Bible, whether they were preachers or not. And so when you think about us being a, quote, people of the book, uh, folks, we really have a lot to learn about what real people of the book are. There's just a, another picture from the inside. Forgive me, I was a sweat box. Amen. I took my shirt off there. And again, this one talks about their Waldensian preachers going out long before uh, the Reformation ever began. This is a picture I have on the cover of my book that I borrowed, amen. I was finally able to see it for my, with my own eyes, amen. And so this is a real blessing. If you ever get a chance to go, I would encourage you. Uh, it will change your life to go to this wonderful place where God preserved His churches down through the ages. This is an actual brochure from Valdez, amen. And you can tell I'm putting a plug in for them. Brother Tron and his wife are good friends of ours, and... Uh, he's just been a blessing. I'm, I'm reading his second book right now on the Waldenses. It's, a, again, historical fiction. But uh, they'll, they'll treat you like a king over here. You can go toured or untoured, whether you'd like a, a personal tour guide. And uh, so these are all the buildings. Again, you can tell how much these people love their history uh, just to go to the trouble of doing all this. So you literally walk through these different structures over there. 
and they reproduced everything just like it is in Italy right there in Valdez, North Carolina so that you could experience the Cochin Alps without actually going there. Even as I mentioned, you see that porch up there on the top right there by the Trail of Faith symbol. That's a, a quote mountain they built, amen? Now it's not a real high mountain, but it's probably about 50, 60 feet high and you have to walk these steps up to it. And then you'll see the cave church down there. I believe that's number three is the cave church. And so they constructed this cave church that you can go in. And uh, so again, I just wanted to, to, to show you that. This is the School of the Barbers right over there in Valdez, North Carolina. And I would just let you know not only what's in the, the basement of this, uh, but the animals would live on one floor and the preachers would live on another floor. And that's how they did it all winter long. They would stay there and they would study all through the cold months. But uh, uh, when you go down in the basement, there's some pictures and they are absolutely gut-wrenching. Um, if, if, if you're in there, you'll probably leave in tears thinking about the sacrifice. Now, I'm just here to tell you, I'm going to show you a lot of those pictures tonight. And I really believe that we've hit, as it were, our faces too long from really looking into these things. And I'm very thankful that my children have got to sit through all kinds of these Baptist Heritage Conferences because um, we could see this kind of persecution very quickly in America. And I've wanted my children for a long time to know that we are not alone, we are not the first ones to suffer for Christ, but there were millions of people who were willing to give their lives for Jesus Christ. And in some way, I hope that this will be an inspiration to us, uh, that Christ, although some of us may have to suffer, uh, it will all redound to the glory of God, and we are not the first. The Waldenses were willing to give their lives, in many cases, for the gospel. They witnessed much. The ancient Waldensian peddler is one example. This is from, the, from Valdez over here in the 12th century, the Waldenses built their Collegio de Barbe, School of the Barbas, where young aspiring ministers came to study and memorize the Bible under the tutelage of an older experienced evangelist. Then they went out two by two in secret to evangelize, knowing that if caught, they would be killed because papal authorities had forbidden them to preach. The Barbas were zealous evangelists, but when they were branded as heretics and forbidden to preach or circulate scripture, when even possession of a Bible was punishable by death, they were forced into secrecy and disguise. From here, listen, with the threat of death, they still went out to evangelize, win people, and start churches. They were forced into secrecy. From here, they went out in pairs, traveling in the guise of traders. As they sold their wares in the marketplaces of Europe, they spoke to their customers of the Bible whenever the moment permitted. At one time, it was said, don't miss this tonight if you miss everything else, it was said the Barbas could travel all the way across Europe and spend the night each night with one that they had won to the Lord. And uh, I was talking to, who was I talking to that just put those three, uh, three cedar trees up? Was that, was that in this church I was talking to somebody? Uh, in my book, I mentioned that. Uh, what they would do is, as they would travel and folks would get saved by the grace of God, the next group coming through that were Waldenses, and they would be through the area. They wouldn't know which house was hostile, which house was not hostile. So they would either plant three cedar trees or three juniper trees in a specific spot, and you would know that that was now a friendly home and you could stop. And, of course, there were no hotels back then. You'd stay with them. They'd feed you, and you'd pray, and you'd sing together, and you'd leave down the road refreshed as a preacher. And uh, so they had some interesting ways that they got around everything. Now, you think about this. You're witnessing to somebody you know that the Bible's a forbidden book, and if that person screams and calls to the field for their husband or sons, you could immediately have papal authorities upon you, and you could be being chased and hunted down and killed for sharing the gospel with just one more person. Say, why do you venerate these people? I don't venerate them, but I want to tell you folks, these were real Christians under a time of great persecution, and they gave everything for Jesus. I mentioned 
their Bible. I won't take a whole lot of time on this tonight. Uh, Cathcart said this in reference to their love for the Bible. They loved the Scriptures. They could repeat entire books with ease, sometimes the whole New Testament, and were extremely anxious to circulate Bibles. Again, a Bible that could put you in a, in a dungeon. They were extremely anxious to circulate them. J.T. Christian said the Bible was a living book, and there were those among them who could quote the entire book from memory. It's often stated that modern Baptists are a people of the book, and yet it is a rarity to see this type of love for the Holy Bible, which the Waldenses commonly demonstrated. Starting with this statement, to be caught reading or possessing a Bible carried an immediate sentence of death. Thus the people of the book learned to conceal their Bibles. Uh, notice this, in secret hiding places, even baking them into loaves of bread. Village members each committed to memory a book of the Bible so that if all Bibles were destroyed, they could recreate it from their collective memories. Is that not amazing? I wonder how far we get right now if we're all being chased into a cave and in six months from now we tried to reproduce the Bible with nobody possessing one, how much we would actually have uh, to reproduce. Show you this. I think this is this a video? No. Uh, there we go. It was not a game. It was real. Some more pictures of the Koshin Alps that we took. Just trying to show you how remote this is. We looked at places like this and said, how do you get there? And literally, there was no answer that we found. And these places are all across these mountains. It's literally mind-boggling. This is one of the early homes that they had over in Valdez. And... I asked the man, this guy here, this is several years ago, this picture's taken from that, that daughter there is married, and that's Emma right there, I think, in that colorful jacket right there. And, uh, but this guy's a full-blood Waldensian fellow. He's already gone on to heaven. He was a saved man, and uh, he toured us one time, and I said, sir, uh, and let me show you this again. I said, were their houses actually this small? And here's what he told me. He said, don't tell anyone this. We actually had to make this house double size so that we could fit families into it. And uh, by the way, most of us probably have a garage or a shed this big or even bigger than this or a pole barn to keep our junk in. And I thought about that. And when you walked inside, there was a little bed, a table, a candle, and just not a whole lot, maybe a little wash tub in there. And you'd turn around and run into yourself and you were leaving again. It was a, so the idea was that they were not laying up their treasures on earth. Amen. They had kind of a communal living mentality, much like early Christianity. Uh, they gave and they helped one another. We would look at the Amish and Mennonites and see that, that, that aspect of their living. Uh, that was very similar to the way uh, that a lot of the Waldensian villages were. They just helped each other out and tried to, to defend each other. This is actually a community oven, for example. And they would, all the ladies would come on one particular day and they would, some men would get the fire stoked at night. And they'd all come and they'd all bake their bread so that they would have it for the week. And so that's kind of the way they lived. The Waldenses were forced to run up goat paths in order to evade being tortured or slaughtered. The section I want to show you now is the journey that we took to the, uh, the, the most popular, prominent Waldensian cave church. Now, this was not for fun or nostalgia. Uh, they would live in these caves. They would run and they would hide 
and uh, the, the papal authorities would be scouring the mountains and sometimes they would have to come out at night to scavenge for berries, to get fresh water, uh, to even eat twigs or grass or whatever was necessary, literally starving to death in these places. And uh, again, we'll, we'll show you more about this. So we're, we're on our journey here, uh, walking down. Here's a video that I'll... You've probably heard of the Dominicans. Dominican literally means God's dogs. And the slang term was they were the Pope's hounds. And so they were known for sniffing out heretics. And then, of course, you have uh, the uh, Jesuits. The Jesu all of these, by the way, these, all these groups, these counter-reformation groups, they all went out under the guise of re-educating people and uh, such. But all of them would infiltrate congregations and try to slaughter and destroy. And there were others as well. I won't get into that right now. Uh, this again is continuing our walk to the cave church. These are just some cracks and crevices. I was just amazed at how many. Before we get into it, can I just stop and throw this out at you? This idea that is held by universities such as the one we mentioned and a lot of your Southern Baptists and liberals today, they actually hold to this position that the church disappeared and it evaporated into Rome and that there is no evidence of any scriptural church that you may find down through the dark and middle ages and then the idea is, and I've even heard some of the Southern Baptist leaders, the president himself, said, thank God for Reformation Day, and thank God that the church once again emerged and began to exist again, as though it was somehow preserved in some corrupt form in Catholicism, and then the Reformers had to bring it back to the planet. And so, in that sense, they believe that it ceased to exist on the planet. It absolutely flies in the face of every promise of perpetuity, preservation and protection that Jesus himself said. Now, uh, I'm asked, are you a landmark? And the truth is, I have no idea. I might be. I just don't know. But I'll tell you what I do know. I know this, that Jesus Christ started a church, and I do not have a direct uh, set of papers, such as organizational papers, baptismal records, and uh, pictures of churches and such, that I can trace my, our church, church by church by church by church, back to John standing in the river. You say, well, if you don't have no trail, I didn't say I had no trail of paper. I do have a trail of paper. Right here it is. It's called the King James Bible. Amen. And Jesus Christ promised, just as that statement says, that he would be receiving glory in the church throughout all ages, 
world without end. Amen. Now the question is, how can God receive glory in the church throughout all ages if the church does not exist throughout all ages? I think of the Great Commission where Jesus said, as He said, all power is given unto me in heaven and earth. He said, go ye therefore. He bestows the authority of heaven upon them, gives that, that, that church authority. Then He says, alone with you always, even unto the end of the world. Amen. I've got another question for you. How could Jesus be with them all the way to the end of the world if that institution was not going to exist to the very end of the world. Then we're told in 1 Corinthians 11:26, this do you as often as you do till the Lord come. How could churches be keeping the Lord's table all the way until Jesus comes if said churches did not exist all the way until Jesus comes? In the Great Commission, you've got that church keeping the ordinance of baptism. In 1 Corinthians, you've got them properly keeping the Lord's table. You see a preservation of the church, a preservation of the ordinances. It is all there. And uh, so what I'm showing you, folks, this is real. This is, if you wondered, where were the churches in the 7th century and in the 9th century and in the 10th century? I can show you other places, but for sure there was orthodoxy tucked down in these Koshin uh, Alps, in these valleys, and this is one of the places, all right? I get excited about perpetuity, amen? I tell you, it's just been attacked and uh, maligned and lied about. Let me see, okay, moving on. Bear with me. I hope these, these videos don't bother you. This stuff's real cool to look at until you think about the fact that they went in there with their little babies and pregnant women, and they went in there with uh, their elderly and crippled parents who were in excruciating pain, freezing, and living. I mean, when we sit in our easy chair and we lay our King James Bible down and sip our coffee, we have no idea the great price that was paid. And honestly, that was what inspired me more than anything else to write the book and to try to lecture on this to understand, folks, that we have had it so easy and we are just so blessed by God. We are very unique in this church age not to face the persecution. Uh, people, people think, you know, well, just because there's a pre-trib rapture, we're never going to see any kind of persecution. And do they have no idea that the church from the very beginning has sailed through bloody seas? It has been persecuted all the way down through the ages. We live in a unique time frame where for some reason God has given us a space of grace where we haven't had to live under this kind of persecution.
there's the pulpit inside the cave with broad daylight with the light shining down on it. Standing on the Waldensian pulpit. This is the one in Valdez about 10, 12 years ago. I was standing in front of it. So again, the idea of how much these people love their history to reconstruct a cave like this, I don't know what it takes, but so there's a door that you enter in through, which is really great because the actual entrance they try to depict is behind that rock under my left arm there. And, and it, that would be much like the one that we just looked at. We've been in here numerous times and every time we conduct a tour through this particular region, we'll go here and uh, it's awesome. Brother Beller preached probably one of the greatest messages I ever heard. The Waldenses were almost exterminated. They fled thousands of them over the frozen Alps up into Switzerland. And many of them died, and the gospel was almost exterminated from Italy, those, those uh, Koshin Alps there, as the papal armies came and moved in and stayed there and tried to keep them out. But years later, that group came back and re-evangelized those valleys, and the gospel began to flourish again. It's an amazing story, but he preached a message on uh, uh, passing the light. And he lit a candle, turned the, the, it's pitch black in this place over there in Valdez, and he passed that from person to person and said, don't let the light go out. Man, it was a great illustration how they kept the light of the gospel alive all the way down through the ages, and they preserved the Word of God successively over and over and over by copying it and memorizing it. Uh, they were literally called the apostle speakers, amen, uh, because they, they, they was said they had a gift to memorize the Bible. But uh, anyway, this, again, just an awesome place to visit. There's a 2012 uh, Motley Crew, amen, that we took in there. Great place to go. While hiding in these caves, the Waldenses would preserve the Word of God for future generations like ours. Pay no attention to that. Amen? We're moving on. Uh, I am not going to deal with imperial persecutions. Let me just say this. The churches uh, had no time uh, where the devil would let up. Let me just throw this out. Uh, we talk about John. We talk about the apostles. Then there's this period of polemic. We don't know much about uh, those couple of years there around the turn of the 1st to the 2nd century. But uh, we do know this. Uh, that the Baptists were persecuted all the way through. Uh, before it was put in the hands of Roman Catholicism, it was run strictly by the state Roman. So these were what we call imperial persecution, men like Nero, and uh, then, of course, Domitian and uh, Decius, uh, and there's so many, Diocletian, Septimus Severus. By the way, this guy put a column up, uh, and he put a column up, Extincto nominee Christorium, the name of Christians has been extinguished. And this is just a funny sign I found. This was not his column, Amen. No Baptists. I have no idea why they put that sign up, but I found that so perfect. I'd share that. A little levity, amen. Uh, Diocletian. Then there was Septimus Severus and, and so many other ones, Marcus Aurelius and such. But uh, future persecutions would be carried up by Rome. All right, moving on. Waldensians. As they would hide in these caves, they would light fires and they would force them out. And this picture in Valdez, actually. And there's a lot of this stuff over in Italy as well. I just haven't had time to wade through everything and redo uh, all the old. Uh, different slideshows I put together, but they would whop their heads off one by one by one. There's again, we're going to get some of those pictures. And what I'd like to do this evening is from this point forward, I'm not going to give you the history of the Waldenses personally, but I'd like them to give you uh, their own history. He being dead yet speaketh, amen. Uh, they have this chart, and this chart uh, was handed to me about 25 years ago by a pastor who said, uh, these people preserve the Word of God for you. You need to look into this. And he never really did look into it, but God burned my heart to do that. And uh, this, uh, let me just explain to you, the Waldenses communicated in symbols. Now, 
I don't fully understand why they did that, but uh, you would find them in caves. If they'd be in caves for any length of time, you would find symbols inscribed on the walls, the sheer amount of time they had, but they would depict things. And these symbols, much like those in Revelation, they don't point to nothingness, or they're not just there for the symbol's sake, but they point to tangibles. And in so doing, they would tell their story. These were found later on parchments and fine vellum, and they, they would make their way into little pamphlets and booklets, and ultimately into books. Yeah, over there in Italy, we went into one of the Waldensi museums over there, the big one. Uh, we went into that museum, and they have portions that they've extracted from prison walls where there's scratchings and inscribings all over, and they have them right there in the museum where you can see where these people scratched with a rock or something. And uh, so what we have in this chart, though, which was put together about 400 years ago, this chart uh, depicts many of those symbols all put together to tell a, a well-rounded story of the Waldenses. It's them through the years telling you about themselves. Now, it's an Italian, uh, Latin, and French, and we've done the interpretation for a long time ago. So what I'd like to do is share with you what the Waldenses wanted you to know about their history. Bear with me. We'll walk through this together. This is from the historian Leaguer, first time it was actually published, 16 and 69. You'll note the first symbol, Antiqua Cogna Ilium Insignia which means ancient signs and symbols. So they're letting you know that what you're about to see are ancient signs and symbols, and of course those symbols are going to speak of something or tell a story. So there's a good look at it. Now the one right under it you'll see is Lux Lucit in Tenebris. That means the light shining in the darkness or the light that shineth in the darkness. Now what you'll notice about this particular symbol is that there's a candle, and that is how they depict themselves, as the, the light. Ye are the light of the world, and they believed that, and they took that to heart, and they lived that in their evangelism. But you'll also notice that their light is enshrouded in darkness, and this speaks of the dark ages, and it speaks of the fact that they knew that they were living in very dark times. I don't know if you and I can fathom it, but if you know from your parents' lips, from the time your little boy or little girl, that... 500 years or five centuries, all your people have ever known is severe persecution. And you look out into the future, it must be like standing in some kind of a dark tunnel and, and not having any hope. I can't imagine it, but this was their history. They were living and they knew it through very, very dark times. By the way, dark, the Dark Ages, don't just read an encyclopedia and think you understand the Dark Ages, because I promise you, you don't. You don't understand it from a godly Christian worldview and perspective because they'll tell you it was a low ebb of learning and there wasn't any great art being painted, no great music being composed, and da-da-da-da-da poverty and disease. And yes, it was all of that, but it was a dark time primarily because the Bible, which emanates light, and the gospel of Jesus Christ was forbidden. They attempted to exterminate it from off the planet. And that's really from a Christian perspective, why this was the Dark Ages. So they said we're surrounded in darkness, and yet you'll notice their light is shining still up and out of that darkness. Now, there's another interesting feature on this particular symbol. By the way, this is the, this is the universal symbol of the Waldenses. We literally went into Angronia, and we walked into a building, and I thought, this is a cool Waldensian church, because a wall mural about 15 to 20 foot tall and about 20 foot wide had the big uh, candle and the Bible and all of that. It was just as beautiful as can be. Then we found out it was their, it was their public government center. 
Amen. And I thought, this is great. Amen. I love this. They know whether or not they embrace it all today or they're all saved today. They know their heritage that they were the persecuted people of God. And that's literally this way they state it. We are the persecuted people of God. No one's ever been persecuted for their faith like us. Well, uh, you'll notice you're the light of the world. A city that's set in a hill uh, cannot be hid. Now, uh, let me just notice this with you. Those seven stars, it said that those seven stars uh, represent the seven churches of Revelation, and they point back to an apostolic origin of the Waldenses. And so they were saying a couple of things uh, with this first particular symbol. We are the light in the dark ages, and we have an apostolic origin back with Jesus Christ. Now, I'm going to show you a series of pictures. These pictures, uh, I'm asked often about martyr books, and I would encourage you uh, to get Thielman J. Van Brott's Martyr's Mirror because it's comprehensive and it's, it's very accessible. Uh, I'm asked about Fox's Book of Martyrs. That's a good one to have. But uh, Fox is not nearly. He was a Church of England historian. And uh, there's some great information in there. Uh, but really, this is a book, and uh, it's, it's impossible to get a hold of, I'm pretty sure, unless you're like a multimillionaire. And if you'd like to buy me this for Christmas, I'd really appreciate that. But uh, you're going to see some pictures out of an old book, a wooden-covered book called Wright's Martyology. And Wright's Martyology, in this book, there's about 250 to 275 originally wood-etched pictures of persecutions. It is the true Martyology, if there ever was one put together. And uh, we had the privilege of taking that old book, and my daughters would carefully hold the pages, knowing how to properly handle an old book is very important. And I took digital pictures of so many of these when I had access to one, and it's such a blessing. So I'm going to share with you some pictures, I promise you, most of these you've never seen before because the only place they're even put out publicly is by yours truly, amen, because they're simply in that book, Writes Martyology. But they're wonderful and they tell us because each one of these in with it in Writes Martyology have the documentation and the actual circumstance of the persecution that was put right in the book. And it's a massive book. But anyway, so this is the Dark Ages. If you're a believer, I can't imagine sleepless nights. Every creek... Every noise outside, every dog that barked, you know, thinking that the papal authorities were upon you, knowing that other villages had been burned the night before. This is the way they lived, in absolute horror. They did the most cruel things. Some, I'm still discovering some of the tactics, like the widow's stepsister, a metal cage, the shape of an egg, about as big to squeeze a human body in. If you can imagine several men scrunching you down as far as you can be scrunched and putting you in that and then closing the top on you like that and locking it and you being in that shape and then several days later they open it and you can't even move and you die. In, 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 I mean, in the Tower of London, by the way, they had a hexagonal torture chamber. They'd hang you on the wall and they'd cut your fingernail, rip your fingernails out, cut you up in pieces and you could watch each other torturing and dying as, as you, you hung there on the wall. Uh, but anyway, uh, we don't understand this type of persecution. And this is the value, I think, in these people that they were willing to love Christ unto their death that people today need to know. And our young people need to know that this took place. The second one is the bush burning but not consumed. You see the word kimbure, the word we get our word combustion from. Uh, so this is, of course, you'll note that there's a bush and that bush is on fire. Now, this is more than a play on the uh, call of Moses and the words of Scripture. What they were saying was this, the bush is burning, but it's not consumed. And what they're saying in essence was this, you may burn us 
and burn us and burn us and burn us, but you cannot utterly cast down the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. Thank God those folks had read uh, the last chapters just like we did, amen? And they knew that the church rises triumphantly, but uh, that's what they were saying. No matter how many of us you burn, Jesus wins in the end. And that was their hope, amen, that they had the gift of eternal life. Now, uh, in reference to this, you may have heard of the Romans Road. And I mentioned it just briefly a little bit about this other night where you can lead someone to Christ showing them verses from the book of Romans. You've probably heard of that. I'm not going to comment on that necessarily. But you may have heard also of the Roman road system, the most comprehensive road system up to that time frame in history. Some of the roads were about 15 foot wide, amazing. Some of them much more narrow, but they would span the entirety of the kingdom. An amazing feat. And, uh, but you may not have heard of the other Roman roads. They went like this. Your village was sacked tonight. And when they came in, every person that breathed, they would whop their head off. And they had several horse-drawn wagons unloaded and ready to load the heads into. They would then drag those horse-drawn wagons all the way up to the top of the mountain to the castle church. And they would take these nine or ten foot tall lodge poles pointed on the end and they would have them prepared in the ground. And men would come down, throw on those wagons, and they would take those heads of the Waldenses, and they did the same with the Albigenses and the Paulicians, and they would put them on top of those poles. And then a couple of men would come down through, and sometimes they would wrap them in twine or linen, and they'd pour oil on their heads, or sometimes they'd simply take pitch if they had enough accessible. Pitch is a flammable tar-like substance from the trees in the Alps. And they would take a bucket of that, and they would slop it on top of the head. And they would light those heads on fire, and they would space them about 15 or 20 feet apart. And some historians have documented that this took place in cases over 40 solid miles they would line the roads, with the heads of those that they had slaughtered. Now, in many time, in cases in different places, Rome liked to strike fear in the common populace, and their slaughters were so horrendous, and they were saying, don't you dare dissent against us. And it worked, because those down in the valleys would look up, and if they would see the roads lit up, they knew there was another horrendous slaughter, and it certainly drove them into hiding, or maybe even to quit and turn their back on Jesus Christ. So Rome knew what they were doing. Upon this rock I'll build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. They believed that. Amen? If you were caught with the Bible, you were burned with your Bible. This one, Luctor et Emergo, or emerging. So struggling and freeing oneself. And we talked so much about this, I hate to belabor the point, but what you're looking at here is what I call the lily of the valley. Somebody calls it a rose bush. But, but the lily of the valley is there and it's, it's blooming and it's starting to become beautiful. And yet now you have all these vines and thorns. And on the original document, you can see this much more clearly, but they're choking out this lily of the valley. And what they're saying is, uh, Luctor Eddie Mergo, we're struggling and we just want to be free. Uh, they just wanted to be able to sit in churches like you and I, unmolested. Hey, did anybody here look in the rearview mirror to look for the cops following you here tonight? Anybody worried about somebody bursting in and burning? us preachers to death along with this building tonight we have no care in the world folks these people long just to be able to one day sit in church flop open a bible have a man stand up plant his feet and preach jesus christ without having to worry about being slaughtered or or some something you know some horrible disembowelment or something and that's what they're saying we are struggling and we just long to be free by the way it's so interesting to me 
that of the same lineage in those scriptural churches, it was the Baptists of Virginia that ultimately won religious liberty for America so the gospel could go all around the world. So their suffering and struggle was not in vain. Amen? But they just wanted to have liberty of conscience. The persecutions were mind-boggling. The wicked, evil imaginations became worse and worse. Hoist them up to a hornet's nest for fun. Cut out their tongues, and with tongs they would rip off pieces of their flesh. This is from Wright's Martiology. They would flay them. Their banner, banner says, The general history, check it out, of the evangelistic churches of the valley of the Piedmont. Amen. See, why not call them Baptists? Because all churches were then Baptists. Amen. If they were evangelistic scriptural churches, they were just Baptists by their very nature. But you'll notice that this, uh, these men here, so moving on very quickly, by the way, to call yourself evangelistic during a time when you're not allowed to evangelize, that amazed me in and of itself. But you'll notice now these Waldensian men, they're standing on some things. And this one on the left, he's standing on the rosary beads, showing his contempt for dead religion, not because he hated Catholics, but because this religion was sending people to hell standing on the, the papal crown and the staff, and the bishop's crown is trampled over there. And if you look real close at these fellers down there in the middle, you'll notice that poor feller on the right there, he seems to have broken his hammer uh, as he's smacking the anvil. Now the anvil, anvil, you know, has always been symbolic of the indestructibility of the Word of God. And Rome tried to smash it and destroy it, and yet the Waldenses depict the hammerhead falling off. What they're saying is you can smack that dude and smack that dude all day, you are not not going to destroy the Word of God. Amen? That was their foundation. That's the centerpiece on the bottom of everything else. The Word of God is right there at the foundation of everything on the symbol chart. The historian Boyer said, no people of modern times exhibit so much analogy to the ancient Jewish people as the Vaudois of the Alps of Piedmont. No history is more abounded in marvels than theirs. No church has more abounded in martyrs. Just to bust bones and knock things out of joint. French pastor and author Alexis Mustan opined, and I mentioned this last night, there's not a rock in the Vaudois Valleys which may not be looked on as a monument of death. Not a meadow, but has been the scene of some execution. Not a village, but has had its martyrs. No history, however complete, can contain a record of them all. This is from Valdez, North Carolina throwing little babies off the mountains, burning them in heaps. So why does this matter? Well, this matters because this is not just history. This is not the Incas and the Mayans, friend. This is heritage. These are your people. This is who you're connected to. If they were alive today and they lived right here in this region, they would have no recourse but to be a member of a scriptural church that follows the whole Bible, just like this church right here. And if you and I lived back then, we would have no recourse but to be a member of their church, knowing their doctrine and manner of life. These are our people. For a day, for a week, for a month, for a year, for a century, for centuries, after centuries... By the way, if you go to Shipshawana, Indiana, there is a museum called the Menohoff Museum, and there are a variety of different racks. They have a rack up there that they depict. The Mennonites share a common heritage with the Baptists from the Anabaptists. Now, understand this. I didn't say they were correct. 
they left true doctrine when they became the Mennonites. Menno Simons wasn't a Mennonite, he was an Anabaptist, you see. And so, but the point is, they did come from the Anabaptists, and that is where our lineage in part comes from as well. There's different strains. There's a Waldensian strain as well. However, uh, up there at that museum, they actually, you can go there in the Menohoff Museum, and they have uh, thumb screws. And these are actual thumb screws that were used to pierce through the fingers. They'd sit you down, tie you to a chair, and they'd start turning the thumb screws to extract a confession. Will you attend the Mass? No. <laughs> I mean, I don't know, know if we can imagine the excruciating pain. They'd start pulling out toenails and pulling out fingernails. Uh, up there, they also have what's called the, uh, the, the Anabaptist catcher. It was an old rendition of an old cattle catcher, about a nine-foot-tall metal pole with a big uh, strap on top like this. It came down with a space in the middle, and it had sharp edges, almost looked like bunny ears. And if you were chasing somebody and they got too far ahead, you could snap it over their neck. And if they continued to run, it would take their head off. They have one of those up there. They have a, a, a one-man prison depicted up there that was commonly used. And 15 feet, they would drop you down to the bottom of that, close the top, it had wooden bars on it, and then they, would, they could vomit on you, they could defecate on you, they could urinate on you, they'd tie a rope to you, or they'd just send the peasants down a ladder to pull your corpse up after you were done. In a prison, way down there with nothing but just uh, 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 filthy dirt walls all around you, and they have a rack up there. What they would do is they'd put people on the rack and they'd crank it up and tighten it. There's no pain, they say, more than pulling your joints out of the sockets themselves and yanking your body apart. They'd tighten it and daily they'd tighten it. Will you attend the Mass? No, I will not. I cannot turn on Jesus Christ. And <laughs> as he'd scream in agony. From the memoirs of Vaudois Barba, he said, There is not a town in Piedmont in which some of our brethren have not been put to death. Not a town. They used the wheel. Roll it right down off the cliff. Mustan then relates, Jordan Tertain was burned alive at Susa. Hippolyte Rosier was burned at Turin. Valerman Ambrose was hanged on the cold demean. Yugon Chiamps of Finistrel was taken at Susa and conducted to Turin where his bowels were torn out and flung into a basin. Peter Gamenea of Bobi died at Lucerta with a living cat in the interior of his body. Mary Romaine was buried alive at Rocopecia. Michael Gonet, a man almost 100 years of age, was burned alive at Sarsena. Susan Michelini was left in a dying state upon the snow. Bartholomew Frash, having been hacked with savers, had his wounds filled with quicklime and expired in this manner. At Phenil, Daniel Michelini had his tongue torn out of Bobby for having praised God. James Baradon died covered with brimstone matches which they had fastened between his fingers and about his lips, his nostrils, and all parts of his body, and then lighted. Now, this is just some far-off history, but this is somebody's daddy. This is somebody's preacher. This is somebody's son. And these were real people. So hard to put yourself there. And to think about what they went through. Daniel Revel had his mouth filled with gunpowder, which was set on fire, and the explosion of which tore his head to pieces. Mary Moonen was taken at the comb of Louisa. The flesh of her cheeks and of her chin was removed so that the jaws were exposed. And in this way she was left to die. Paul Garnier was slowly mangled at Rora. Thomas McGuetti was mutilated in an indescribable manner at the fort of Maribog, and Susanna Jaquin cut in bits at Latore. A number of young women of Talleray 
in order to escape outrages still more dreadful to them than death, flung themselves from a precipice and perished among the rocks. So wait a minute, Waldensian young ladies committing suicide? Can you be saved and commit suicide? I'm not going to run that rabbit. Your pastor is well capable of teaching that. And I'm certainly not endorsing suicide at all. But what I do want you to understand is what they esteem to be worse than death. It was said of these women that they were put on the auction block. And when the men from Turkey would come in, they were the men uh, who were the highest of bidders would get them, who were also, quote, the basest of men. And they would have their way with these women and misuse them and abuse them and, and then throw them away like a piece of trash. And when these Waldensian ladies knew and had heard that they were being rounded up for that, they simply begin to cast themselves off high precipices and die from it. I don't, you say, how, who am I to judge this? Who might stand back and say, well, man, there's no way they could have been saved, or if they were saved, they shouldn't or shouldn't ought to have done that. I have no, I've never been through anything. What, a guy slam a door in your face? I mean, folks, look, if this does nothing else for you tonight, think about the magnitude of the fact that I know a man, I know where he lives, who split a church over a stick of gum. Now, I know of people who just because of their wicked pride would destroy the work of God and split churches wide open. And to think about how these people love God is just mind-boggling. How petty and just so small we are. Sixty suspected heretic preachers burned to death on a boat. Sarah Rostenil was cleft up through the middle of her body and was left in a dying state on the road from Ariel's to Lucerna. And oftentimes they would cut the baby out of their womb, fill it with, with some kind of corn or, or grain, and let the hogs come and feed out of their cavities. Anne Charbonnet was impaled alive and born in a stake like a banner from San Jean to Latore. Some of those pictures over here in Valdez are of that very thing. Daniel Rumbaugh had his nails torn out. Will you recant your faith in Jesus Christ? And they would sit there, and the chronicler would sit there with this book open, recording what was taking place and every word that was said so they could read it against him before they would kill him. How many ever saw the movie Flame in the Wind? Have you ever seen those torture chambers where the rocks fall down and stretch those people? They do a pretty good job at one, at one time frame during the Dark Ages. That was very realistic to the way they would do it. But no, I cannot turn my back on Jesus Christ. So they cut His fingers off. And then they nurse you and stop the bleeding. Literally. I mean, this is, this is demonic. It's, it's devilish. And, and will you attend the Mass? You fool! You can go back to your family. Yes, you have no fingers, but come into the Holy Mother Church. I cannot turn my back on Jesus Christ. And then, as it says here, then His feet were cut off, and then His hands were cut off, and then they were severed with blows of hatches, and His arms and His legs separated from His body upon each refusal that He made to abjure the Gospel this really happened, you better believe it did. And the Catholic Church can't apologize for it and get forgiveness either. Are you listening to me? The mother of harlots will be judged in Revelation 17 and she is going down, friend. This whole ungodly institution that would do such atrocious things. By the way, it never happened is what they would lead you to believe. I mentioned, I didn't mention Calabria, and I should have down in southern France. They migrated. They were, didn't have enough space for their animals, and there was such severe persecution. So down near the tip of the, of the boot, as it were, a place where Paul would be uh, in, in earlier years. But the Vaudois in this place were surrounded, pursued, waylaid on their approach to their place of retreat, and slaughtered by men in ambush. 
the forests in which they could not be got at, they simply set them on fire and burned them all. The greater part of them perished, and many of those who made their escape died of famine in the caverns to which they retired. Now, think with me for a minute. Your job is an underling of the exchequer, the inquisitor general. It is your job to slaughter and kill and make sure they're not breathing as many of these heretics as possible. And you have been now doing this for four and a half solid years, okay? And you can smell blood at night when you're asleep. You can hear the screams everywhere you go. When you're riding on a horse to the next attack, you can already hear and see the horror on the infants' faces. And So what would they do? This was such a horrendous slaughter, for example, that took place over this long period of time in southern, uh, southern Italy, that notice what they said. What did the monks and inquisitors now do? They said, we cannot endure the sight of bloodshed. These exterminations are revolting to us. Oh, come, come with us into the fold of the church. They said, please just join the church. We just can't stand to kill people anymore. But it's kill or be killed. And so they continued. These are your people. Maybe you didn't know them, but this is your heritage. I'll close with this section. This is from Yastan. I call it the day, a day in the life of the Vaudois. Just one instance he records among so many. The Grand Inquisitor, in virtue of the powers with which he was invested, now required the aid of the military to execute his commission. Two companies of soldiers were placed at his disposal. He sent them into the woods of St. Extus to bring back the fugitives. But scarcely had they discovered their retreat when they fell upon them crying, Kill! Kill! The unfortunate Vaudois tried to make their escape. The soldiers pursued them in all directions as if they were engaged in the destruction of wild beasts. At last, some of the fugitives gathered upon a mountain and demanded a parley. The captain of the soldiers advanced, Spare us! Spare us! What harm have we done you? Now, I want you to recognize their character, not because they're bragging, but as they're pleading for their life, it just emanates. Notice, have pity on our wives and children. Here it is. Have we not been here for centuries without having given any cause of complaint? Are we not loyal subjects, industrious laborers, and peaceable, well-doing people? Can you imagine without fear of contradiction your life is on the line being able to say that? Obviously, they were godly people. You are devils transformed into angels of light was the reply, but the holy office has unmasked your errors. Well then, said they, if we may not be permitted to profess the faith of our forefathers in peace in these countries which we've rendered fertile, we offer to leave them and to retire into another country. You'll go there to sow the poison of your heresy. No mercy for the rebels. And giving the order for his troops to attack them, he advanced with his men amongst the rocks where the Vaudois had sheltered themselves and slaughtered every single person they could get a hold of. When you go home tonight and crawl in your comfortable bed with safety and your gun laying to your, at your bedside and your Bible on the other side, thank God for the liberty these people fought for and passed down because the liberty John Clark sailed across the ocean was handed to him by others who was handed that desire for liberty of conscience by these people. Their character, generally honest, God-fearing, and hard-working. So I submit for your consideration the Vaudois of the Alps of Piedmont. 
the people of the book. I was giving this session one time several years ago, or one similar to it. I had a young man come up to me. He was very unlearned and thought he knew something. And he came up and he said, and I was doing a chalk talk on a big chart, walking through the ages, and I was demonstrating the Waldenses in, in the lineage. And he came up and he said, as he gestured towards the, the, the dry erase board, he said, do you think it's proper to put these Waldenses in the lineage of our glorious Baptist heritage? And, you know, there's just sometimes you just know God gave you the answer. Because I didn't even have to think about it. And I'd never been asked such a stupid question in all my life. And I said, young man, I don't think it's a stretch at all to put us, or to put them in our heritage. I said, I think the biggest stretch, knowing who they were and how godly they were and what we are today and how sorry we are, I said, I think the biggest stretch I could ever imagine was that somehow we're trying to say that we are what they were. Because honestly, other than the doctrine, I don't really think we're a whole lot like them. We haven't really had to go through anything. Are we really willing to give our lives just like that? Women and children, little boys running up to, and grabbing a hold of their mother, burning at a stake, and, and say, nothing holding them there but the bonds of love and saying, if mama dies, I die also, and burning to death, holding themselves into the flames? I don't have a death wish, and I'm not saying that was right or wrong, but I'm saying... Where's our level of dedication and love for Jesus Christ? Is it just going to take some little thing this preacher says for you to run out the door? What's it going to take for you to turn your back on Jesus Christ? Does this really matter, preacher? Well, as of a few days ago, I'd say this got a whole lot more pertinent than what it's ever been in my ministry. I used to say things like this, Brother Webb. You know, your kids need to know this because, you know, we may not see persecution, but our kids could have jail ministries. But the truth is, we could all be in concentration camps before this thing's over. And you better determine now whether you love Jesus Christ and whether you're going to stay by the stuff or you just joined this thing while it was convenient. I, I, I'm going to tell you this. You can go ahead and leave and quit. You're going to face these people someday. You're going to look in the faces of little children that loved Jesus Christ more than their life. And when they said, are you one of those believers in Jesus too? And they cut their heads off or buried a hatchet in their skull. We're going to look in the face of these little kids that have more character than most of the people in our churches today. I'm not trying to castigate you or beat you down, but I'm just saying we ought to rededicate ourselves afresh and anew to Jesus Christ and His Gospel. We ought to try to go back and be those genuine apostolic Christians that love Jesus Christ supremely and let nothing ever take us away from our love and service for Jesus Christ.